I'm Leah Simone Bowen, the host of Podcast Playlist on CBC. We're a podcast discovery show, and we love a great story. So each week, we highlight the podcast we think you should check out. The show is a classic. Love how they select their topics. It's great. And from time to time, we're joined by some of the biggest names in podcasting. My name is Jamie Loftus. John Green. I'm Michael Hobbs. My name is Nicole Byer, and I have a podcast recommendation. You can find Podcast Playlist on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Imagine this. You walk out in front of a crowd of tens of thousands at a music festival. You have no clue what you're going to do, and you're in your bathrobe. Does that sound like a nightmare? That is Mark Rubier's job. He'll tell you about his entirely unique brand of music, comedy, and improv. I'm Talia Schlanger, sitting in for Tom Power. You're listening to Q. Hi, I'm Willa Paskin, the host of Dakota Ring, Slate's podcast about cracking cultural mysteries. On Dakota Ring, we dive down rabbit holes and obsessively explore questions hiding in plain sight. Like, why has slow dancing gone out of style? And when did we all become obsessed with hydration? And where did the word mullet, you know, to describe a hairstyle, come from? That's Dakota Ring, named one of the best podcasts of 2023 by The New York Times. Listen to new episodes every two weeks and make sure to follow us so you never miss one. I'll be there to catch you. This is the longest job I've ever had by far. I've never really lasted more than like a year or a year and a half in a job, and I've had many of them. That is Mark Rubier. The job he is talking about might involve wearing a robe or some boxers and getting on stage in front of thousands of people with DJ equipment, a microphone, and no clue what he's going to say. He started off doing YouTube videos and live streams, improvising songs in his apartment. He took the show on the road. That road led him to the main stage at Coachella and, you know, to your neighborhood street corner in New York City. And tonight, that road leads him to the Just for Laughs Comedy Festival in Montreal. Comedy Festival, because his show's are funny. He's had some pretty heavy musical collaborators and endorsements from folks like Nora Jones, Reggie Watts, Erica Badu. As for what to expect at one of his shows, I talked to Mark to try and get a sense of that. Here's our conversation. Mark Rubier, welcome to Q. Thank you, Talia. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to have you. So every show that you do is different, obviously, but can you sort of walk us through what the gist of it is? What do, what do I see when I come to see a Mark Rubier's show? it's as new to you as it will be for me, but generally the, um, the energy is <laughs> unhinged. Um, I'm kind of, a, a, a the, I think the log line is like a one man meltdown where, um, basically I will, uh, I will get on stage, um, with no plan and, uh, use the energy of the audience to sort of fuel what happens. And, uh, that can be anything from, you know, running into the crowd and figuring it out, jumping, people coming up on stage, champagne being sprayed. I mean, there's any manner of things are liable to happen at a show. And uh, I kind of like it that way because, um, you know, it keeps keeps it fresh for me. 
Yeah, it keeps it fresh and exciting and present. Now, I watched, I, like, I watched a video of your Coachella set from a couple of months ago, right? So you step yeah. out in front of however many thousands and thousands and thousands of people, That's and you have no idea what's going to happen. Here. You're not hydrated. You're not moisturized. Is that is that terrifying to you? Well, yeah, I mean, it is. Uh, it certainly was terrifying in, 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 in maybe a, a non-constructive way for a while in that, um, you know, my nerves were worked up so far to the point that it became difficult for me to, um, you know, come up with stuff. But after doing it many hundreds, perhaps thousands of times at this point, you sort of learn to make friends with the terror um, and with the nerves and and let that kind of frenetic energy guide you. You know, there's no way to sidestep that that anxiety before getting on stage because it's just like, all right, I hope this one's good. And, uh, you know, it's just sort of a crapshoot. But, you know, generally it's uh, we've I've managed to, to keep it pretty reliable at this point. No, I get it. I mean, there are some folks I know who do improvising and I'm a musician and I play music and people that I know that that go through the thought process often say that like being like they feel like they've had a good show, quote unquote, good show when they're in it, like when they were in the moment rather than outside of it. And I wonder if there's yeah. an element of that for you, too. And like you have to get out of the way to just mm. to improvise and make make magic without thinking too much about it. Do you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think there is definitely a, a great deal of truth to that. You know, I'll also it's a bit of a balancing act because it's like, you know, it's like if you're playing a set and you have the numbers down and whatever, then you can really sort of like, you know, let that 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 sense memory like guide you and, and get locked into that place. But I do feel like with this show, there is a little bit is maybe a little bit more juggling in terms of I also do have to kind of be very actively thinking of how do I get this moving from this place to that place and make it brief so that people aren't bored and also make it sort of entertaining. So there's a little bit of like meta thinking going on there in terms of how do I drive the show forward. Um, but I, I, I think once I sort of do lock into a groove or a, an idea, then I can definitely let myself get into that, you know, what you're, you know, whatever it is, flow state or whatever, where you're just, you're in it and not really thinking about anything else. And that it's a pretty great feeling, as I'm sure you're aware. Yeah, this is kind of a big question. But so you're like a classically trained pianist. How do you go from that background to developing what it is you do now? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I think that the, the thing that the classical training did for me, which was really the first, uh, maybe 10 or 12 years of my training, um, was gave me at least a foundational knowledge of like music theory, you know, or like Western music theory. And, um, and so, uh, you know, that I incorporate to this day, I'd like a deeper understanding of it. Um, but you know, the, the, the transition really came when I sort of taught myself, I stopped taking classical lessons and taught myself improvisational blues, you know, just the blues scales. And then, you know, some people who I was friends with, um, uh, who were much better pianists than I was or am 
taught me a little bit about jazz theory. Then I took some private lessons in that category. And uh, so, you know, just slowly built up my knowledge on the other side, um, on the improvisational side and, you know, the side, I guess, that I was more interested in. But, you know, that that sort of rigid, theoretical, basic understanding, I think, has served me um, quite well. And that was all, you know, the, the classical dozen a day, keep your fingers up, you know, reading music and all that crap. Um, I hated to do it, but I'm glad I did. What what made you want to perform in the first place, like when you were young? Uh, I, you know, I don't know. It was um, always came very naturally to me. Um, I think, you know, my parents put me in a lot of different things to see what I would latch on to. And acting was really the first one. Piano was right behind it. Uh, actually, I don't know which one came first, but they were very close. And, you know, they put me in a bunch of other things, group sports and math you know they just they put me in a bunch of stuff and and those are the two things that really stuck um and i just never really remember a time when i wasn't excited to be on stage um yeah yeah it's just it's always been a part of my life and has never been like a something that took warming up to get to i just i was always happy to be up there yeah you look like you're very comfortable in your skin up there and in in what you're doing that's for sure I am. I'm lucky. I'm very lucky in that way. You know, for a lot of I have talked to a lot of super talented musicians and performers who have had to overcome extraordinary anxiety and stage fright. And um, I'm just incredibly lucky that I did not have did not have to do that. You know, was there someone that you looked up to when you were coming up, either as a musician or a comedian or like a hybrid of both that sort of set Mm -hmm. you on the the path that you're on like it? Oh, well, I mean, uh, I mean, when I was much younger, I think I can remember, um, Leslie Nielsen, um, and Robin Williams were like massive figureheads for me in terms of, um, I don't know if figurehead is the right word for that. Um, but idols in terms of, uh, electrify well robin williams particularly an electrifying stage presence and just like endlessly good at doing what he did um and leslie nielsen just really resonated and i guess that's sort of the whole david zucker world of comedy that were these sort of absurd um gags you know that uh that really had nothing to do with the plot informed my sense of humor a lot and just Leslie Nielsen's deadpan sent delivery. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I was really attached to that as a kid. And then more recently, Reggie Watts is really the reason that I've said this many times, but he, he is the reason I'm doing this. Um, you know, I, I had a certain idea of the kind of direction I was trying to take my music, which was more in the, in the lines, you know, in the, uh, direction of production, um, and sort of behind the board production uh and reggie blew my mind with um you know the way he improvised and that made me want to kind of do what he does but in my own way and so you know if i had not seen him i would not have bought a looper i would never have started playing around with it he is the one and only reason i'm doing this are you finding it creatively satisfying what you're what you're doing right now like is it scratching the scratching the itch that you that you need yeah it 
It is, but I will say that I have to constantly find slightly different ways to scratch it because, you know, this is the longest job I've ever had by far. I've never really lasted more than like a year or a year and a half in a job, and I've had many of them. Wow. And, um, you know, so it's a long time to be doing the same thing for me. And uh, I, yeah, so like now I'm doing this thing where every week I will get, I bought a car and I got this whole setup figured out to where I can post up on any street corner and stream and perform to strangers. And, um, you know, doing my show in that context now is scratching uh, uh, the itch in a different way that is now again newly satisfying and newly fulfilling. You know, it is an improvised show, but it's always improvised by me. And so I am only, I have limits, you know what I mean? And so like, you know, if I do it the same way, in other words, the same presentation, the same format, I will find myself bumping into walls creatively that I have bumped into before or exploring musical places that I've already explored. And that to me is like, it's like creative death. It's like, um, it's just a nightmare place for me to be in because it's like, I'm supposed to be making this up. And when I get, when I, when I encounter, you know, whatever things I've, I've already done, which it does happen to me, uh, still when I'm doing these, these new things, but if I change it up, it happens to me less often. And, um, you know, it's just, yeah, it's something I have to wrestle with, I, I, I suppose. And it's a delicate balance of stuff, but it's easy for it to get stale, for, for me at least, you know? I get that. What you were um, talking about a minute ago about pulling up on different street corners and, and using people, like bringing your show. I watched one that you did in Sugar Hill in Harlem just recently. Oh, man, and I've, that was really It was amazing. I spent a bunch of time in that neighborhood just just recently. And what I loved watching your videos, like you, you were able to capture the essence of that neighborhood based on the people that you pulled in to this wild improvised performance. Go chill, go chill, go Jane and go King. Go chill, go Jane. And it was just like I watched it and I was like, oh yeah, I'm watching the I'm watching this this neighborhood in through this filter. Like what is it yeah. about you? You have to be a really plugged in person who's like really listening and with it to do that um you know yeah well i i yeah i appreciate you saying that i mean i i agree i felt like the neighborhood was really well represented in that stream and that's why recently i've been trying to take the stream further out the yesterday i went to flushing queens um i think i'll do the bronx uh, in the next few weeks staten island i'll go to and then uh, yeah, i'll go to jersey wherever i'll keep i'll keep bringing it further out but uh, yeah, I mean, you, it's really the same as my hard ticket shows, but again, just framed differently in the sense that I, you do have to be extremely focused. Like it's like, um, and it's kind of one of the reasons I enjoy it is because it it allows me to be in this place. I think it's the reason people enjoy doing a lot of sort of challenging things or whatever is because for a moment you get to only focus on one thing and. You know, we are live in this increasingly um, um, what is the right word for this separate kind of a multi-threaded world where we are constantly expected to have our eyes on like a thousand things, 
Um, and that's not really satisfying for our brains. We never feel fully engaged. Uh, I think it's probably a, a problem a lot of people have who don't have one good solid thing to focus on. Um, but if you can give the brain that in, 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 in the way of doing these shows or reading a book or I don't know, whatever you want to do, ride a bike, just you're focused on one thing. And, um, I'm, I'm really going on a rant here, but yeah, it does take focus to do that. Uh, and I don't know. I don't know if there's any other real secret, just pay attention, you know? It sounds like it gives you something. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it definitely does. It definitely does. Yeah. I think maybe uh, to, to wrap things up, I want to go back to something that you said at the beginning, just about improvising and about the idea of making friends with making friends with the terror. Um, mm. How has figuring out how to make friends with the terror impacted your life off stage? Oh, gosh. I mean, yeah, that whole thing has been a process uh, on and maybe even more so off stage. Um, you know, I'm in therapy now and have been for the last few months, which has been incredibly helpful in terms of um, figuring this new life out. Probably should have started therapy a lot earlier, but um, I'm glad I, I have. And, um, y you know, it, 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 it's just it's a very unusual job that takes a lot of getting used to. And that runs the gamut from like the schedule to just the simple act of like going on tour to um, being the product uh, to constantly sort of uh, having to put yourself out there and, and be validated so that your career can continue. It's like, you know, just a lot of these weird elements that really call into question and test your endurance and your sense of like self-worth and value. Um, I, I think I'm very, again, really lucky to have been raised in a super stable, loving, encouraging home that provided me with a lot of like um, personal stability uh, in that, you know, I've always been a happy dude for the most part um, and know how to kind of get myself there. But this job has tested that a lot more than anything else in my life, for sure. For right now, I'm just trying to find happy moments every day. Um, remember how good it is to be alive and surround myself with um, people I love and people who love me. And that's, uh, you know, have good sex um, and uh, smoke weed uh, and just, uh, you know, don't take life too seriously. That's kind of what I've been doing. And roll with it too. Like I think improv has a lot of good lessons. It. it has a, good, a lot of good lessons about life, improv, right? You're right. You're absolutely right. I do draw those parallels sometimes in my shows, you know, because it's like you can't help it. It's right there. You're you're absolutely right. You just you just got to keep going. You keep going, and um, things have a way of being okay at the end of the day. You know. Let's end it there before we question that thought at all. Yes. Okay. Let's. Yes. Th thanks a lot, Mark. It's been really fun. Thank you, Talia. I really appreciate you having me on. One of a kind, truly one of a kind performer. Uh, that is musician and comedian Mark Loop Daddy Rubier. You can catch him tonight at the Just for Laughs Festival in Montreal. And that's it for the show today. Tomorrow on the show, Misty Copeland became the first black woman 
to be principal dancer at the American Ballet Theater back in 2015. She called her mentor, Raven Wilkinson, who said she did not believe she would see that in her lifetime. Misty has a book called The Wind at My Back that pays tribute to her mentor, Raven Wilkinson, who also blazed trails as a black ballerina. She talks about fighting racism in classical ballet. Our conversation on the show tomorrow. I'm Talia Schlanger, sitting in for Tom Power. See you next time. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.